0: the ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus's feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the women saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. And how she had immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James. James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of God.
1: Well, good morning and welcome to Trinity. Glad that you can be here with us. My name is Jonathan. Get to serve as the pastor of this church as we get started, a new church in the Forest Ranch area, a church for our city, for people who think differently, maybe than the traditional Christian community does, people who want to come in and learn and uh, learn about Jesus. And so we've started this church with a series about him, conversations with Jesus is uh, where we've started I think we're somewhere around nine or 10 weeks into this new community, new people joining, new people figuring out that we're here. We know that that's going to be pretty regular over the next uh, probably eight months, uh, and hopefully much further than that, as we become a church that can be a place where people connect. I fully realize that if you are new to a community, it is a very vulnerable thing to walk into a new space, into a new community, and make yourself available. Very difficult to do that. It takes tremendous courage, not just to walk into a church, but to walk into any new community and say, I am here. Can I be a part of what you're doing? Belonging is a huge part of making church feel like home. We want you to feel like you belong. Uh, One of the ways that we're doing that in this season is just through that creation of the summer calendar. Uh, If you look in the back of the worship guide, they have a calendar listed there. We have some Sunday events, we have some weekday events. We had one last night. I think we called it our backyard. Taco party, taco hangout, probably had 75 or 80 people come, and it makes a huge difference in showing up on Sunday, feeling like, I know that person. We had a great conversation. I can never have a conversation like that. On a Sunday, but I can when we're hanging out. And so maybe uh, find a way to connect, whether it's through Frisbee, whether it's through a taco hangout, whether it's through day of service in a couple of weeks and serving in the city together, uh, to build community. We want this to be your church. And so we want you to uh, take a step with us in getting to know us and getting to know others. Uh, But welcome to each of you. We're in Luke chapter 8. If you want to look in your worship guide, I'm going to be taking you through a couple of things there. But I'm grateful for Luke chapter 8 because we get a realistic glimpse into the experience of following Jesus in a broken world. Luke chapter 8 captures uh, four different stories. We're only going to look at the second two stories of this unnamed woman and this man by the name of Jairus, but these four different stories, they help align our expectations namely that providing uh, namely that following Jesus does not provide us with exemption status. When it comes to the details like suffering, delays, and waiting. Within Christianity, you often find an undercurrent of expectations that assumes once you become a Christian, once you start following Jesus, the everyday normal pain points of life, they're supposed to just kind of fall away. So if you've been following Jesus and the pain points are following you, then all of a sudden you start to be disappointed, dismayed, disillusioned, you get angry, you get... uh, this thing's coming for me, you get hurt because you say, this is not what it means to follow Jesus. This is not why I signed up to be a Christian. This is not what faith is supposed to be about. And so all of a sudden you are disillusioned and you've got huge questions. Luke chapter eight is an opportunity for us to go deeper into that conversation around pain and suffering (laughs) and trial, right? It's coming for me. This is my trial right here in the moment. So if faith isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card, then what we want to know is, what difference does Jesus make in my delay, in the delays, in the frustration, in the waiting, in the suffering? And can he or should he give shape to this experience that we all have of waiting? I think that's a lot of what Luke 8 is about. So I'm going to walk you through three things. Number one, point one will be waiting. Number two will be wondering. And the third point will be witness. How faith in Jesus can change our waiting. And people want to see that difference. All right, so waiting, wondering, and witness. Under point one, verse 40. Look there with me. I'll reread a couple of verses. Verse 40 says, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there was a man, and there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue." And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. We live in a moment where patience might still be a virtue, but waiting and delays are unacceptable. Uh, we took our family to this place called Disneyland. I don't know if you've ever heard of this place. It's not far from here. A place called Disneyland. We've never been. We're kind of recent transplants to the West Coast. Grew up on the East Coast. Been here a couple of years. Our kids were too young to waste the money on them. That was my excuse, but they've gotten a little bit older. So my brother and sister-in-law came to town from the East Coast. They say, hey, why don't we go to Disney? We have a friend who can get us into this place called Club 33. Anybody ever been to Club 33? Probably not because it's pretty exclusive. We got to go to Club 33 that day, which is really just a glorified fancy restaurant. They had some connection, got us tickets, got us in. We had a great meal. And, um, but we heard that this is supposed to be the happiest place on earth, right? But then we heard that there's a way to make it happier, which is with the... Fast Pass, right? That makes Disneyland so much better. We had not heard about this, so we started making phone calls. What are we supposed to do for our first trip to Disney? We're getting strategy from all these different people. They told us to divide and conquer. So my brother and I, we got little kids, mind you, two years ago. Aaron's five now. He was three then, had a six-year-old and a seven-year-old. So we got kind of a little crew, four adults, we divide and conquer. So my brother and I, we take everybody's tickets in, we run to the Fast Pass machine, which meant the little children got split up between two other adults. So the little guy goes with my wife, and then my six-year-old daughter and my son go with uh, my brother's wife onto Space Mountain. Now she's there thinking, this is the land of princesses, right? This is the land of joy and happiness. And in our rush to like, conquer Disneyland, we send the two little ones to Space Mountain, And she gets off. We finally find out where we are. We didn't have enough telephones. Somehow we figured out where everybody was. And my daughter's like weeping at this point. She's like, I thought Disney's supposed to be fun. And I'm like, it is fun. Ride it again. You're going to love it, (laughs) right? But this desire to maximize, minimize delays, get it going, right? The joy of the FastPass was what set us off on our first journey into Disneyland. We're in the culture that created fast food, but evidently fast food is not fast enough. We want it to be a little bit more convenient, so we created this thing recently called DoorDash. Where we want it brought to us. I want to eat my Big Mac with my remote control in my hand. Amazon has given us Prime. Prime. So we don't have to wait. The glory of Blockbuster, which it was glorious in its moment, has fallen to the empire of Netflix so we don't have to get into our car, drive down the street, and pick out these things called DVDs. Remember those? Those are fun. VHS, back in the day. And we're driven by slogans like, time is money, and good things come to those who hustle. We do not like to wait. Here in Luke chapter 8, we're introduced to these two main characters. Jairus and this unnamed woman, whose two stories unknowingly are about to collide into one. Jairus, in this story, he is waiting on a miracle for his only daughter. And this woman has been waiting for 12 years for someone to relieve what is most likely a painful and embarrassing menstrual irregularity. And the introduction that we're given to Jairus is that he is employed by the local synagogue. He's called the synagogue ruler. He's in charge of the order of worship, the rhythms of the local congregation within this small village. And because he is a man of authority, most likely he's also a man of some means, and so he's got connections. He has probably exhausted all of the local connections that he has in an attempt to heal his daughter. And so, this respected man, who, mind you, would never fall down prostrate in front of somebody else, decides that his only option is to find this healer named Jesus. He doesn't know a lot about him, he has heard about him, he realizes, man, I've got no other options. So, the text tells us that he is absolutely desperate. falls down prostrate in front of this man, Jesus, begs him for help. It happens to be Jairus' lucky day. And Jesus says, I'll come with you. And so they start traveling to Jairus' home. As they are walking across town, Luke tells us that a crowd gathers around Jesus. The detail that Luke gives us is that the people pressed around him. These are important details. There are people everywhere. There are hands everywhere. But it's here that we're introduced to this woman, with a flow of blood, a woman who is also in her own way desperate for help. And amidst all the people, all the crowds, all of the touching, she reaches her hand out for the fringe of Jesus's garment, which was most likely a tassel that was hanging off just the edge of his garment. And the moment she touches it, the text tells us that she's healed. But to her dismay in the story... Jesus stops. She did not want any attention. But Jesus knows, as he says, he says, stop. Somebody has touched me. Who was it? And he starts asking around. And Peter's there. We love Peter because, Jesus, are you kidding me? The crowds are pressing on you. Everybody's touching you. He goes, no, no, no. Power has gone out from me. Somebody touched me in a unique way. And knowing that this woman, she could not remain hidden, this unnamed woman, she comes out of the shadows and she confesses everything. She confesses why she was remaining hidden. She also confesses what she wanted, how she had immediately been healed, to which Jesus responds by affirming her faith. He affirms her, talks about faith, but question, where is Jairus in all this? Where is Jairus in all this? This man is waiting for Jesus. I mean, and he's anxious. He's got to be doing this, right? You got to think he's got to use a bathroom or something. I mean, he's going back and forth going, Jesus, I came and got you. I fell prostrate in front of you. You're going to have a public conversation with this woman? I mean, didn't you just hear what Peter had to say? He said, who knows who touched you? Why are you stopping and have a conversation right now? We got to go. This is urgent. And as they're having this kind of mental exchange, which of course is not recorded, but you know that's exactly what's going on. While he's waiting, during this delay, during this public conversation, word comes back to Jairus, stop bothering the teacher, your daughter, in that delay. In that moment, she's no longer here. She has passed away. To which notice, Jesus is the one who continues this conversation. Jesus immediately responds without even a word from Jairus and says to him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And they're in a small village. And so they walk, I don't know. 200 yards, 300 yards, quarter mile, half mile at the most, couple of minutes walk. They walk across the village to where the professional mourners and wailers are already present announcing to the community that this little 12-year-old girl has officially died. That's the detail that he gives us. I want you to notice at this point in the story that the way Luke is telling this narrative, he is inviting us into what I want to call the company of the waiting, the company of the waiting. He is giving us permission to raise the question of God's timing. From the outside, it would appear that Jesus has his priorities completely misplaced. I mean, it would appear that he's prioritizing something chronic and longstanding over something that's urgent, and right now in the moment, it's an emergency. Jesus, I mean, for this woman, she has literally waited 12 years. You're telling me that you couldn't have given her one more hour, one more day? I mean, why does my daughter in the delay have to die? That has to be what we're thinking as we read this story. And let me assure you that when Jesus speaks to that man and says to to Jairus, don't worry, have faith, just believe, all will be well. He is not thinking to himself, oh, this is no big deal. Jesus has got this. What he thinks is that this is a well-wish from a kind man who believes in a future resurrection one day. And he walks back to his home with tears in his eyes, knowing that it is too late. That's what's going on in this story. It is too late. And so you are welcomed into this company of the waiting we are invited to question the timing of God. We often struggle to understand God's timing. In fact, much of faith is related to accepting God's timing in our lives. And this is why Luke is inviting us into this honest, tear-filled, even ancient company of the waiting. If you're a note-taker, write down a couple of different psalms. Many of the psalms are filled with questions about God's timing. A few of them are Psalms 71, 38, 61, 69, and 77. Each of these give voice to a psalmist's cry for help, for mercy, and for God's intervention. Psalm 13, which I'm going to bring attention to on the screen, is entitled, How Long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Am I going to have to wait? Here's how it begins. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? They're questioning God's timing. God, this is getting old. I am ready to move on. Why is this still the momentary circumstance? How come it has not faded away? I thought you were supposed to be a God of goodness, mercy, and kindness. How come I don't feel it? You find that over and over and over again. In the scriptures, in fact, how long, O Lord, is one of the most common phrases found on the lips of most of the biblical figures, most of the main figures in the Bible. Did you know that Abraham waited decades for his son? A promised son, you're going to have a son, he waited decades, and then he waited for a promised land that he never even got to see. Did you know that Moses wandered for how long in the desert? 40 years in a small area going in circles for 40 years. King David was anointed as Israel's king, and yet he had to be on the run, literally from a maniacal king looking back over his shoulder for years wondering, God, I thought you anointed me as king. Why is this guy still trying to take my life? Most of the biblical figures have struggled and waited through delays. And we wait, too. We all wait, too. And we all wait for different things for different reasons, but we all wait, and we each cry out in our own way, oh, Lord, how long? In our unemployment, we wait for the right job. As hopeful mothers and fathers, we wait to begin a family. And as each month passes, each of those months can feel like an absolute eternity. As new mothers and fathers, we say, how long, O Lord, will it be till this baby sleeps through the night? How long will it be till I get my life back, till I get my body back, till I feel like myself again? We have other questions about waiting. How long will I be single? What will it take for this new city to feel like home? When will my son or daughter Stop running away from God. And stop running away from me. What's it going to take to release my anxiety, forgive my friend, fix my body, kick this cancer, warm my heart, renew my marriage? All sorts of waiting, all sorts of questions, all sorts of delays, and then this beautiful fusion of faith amidst it all. So part one is waiting. Waiting. But then we have to ask questions. We have to wonder in both sense of the word. You got wondering questions, and then hopefully by the end, there's a sense of wonder. So part two is wondering, what could it all mean? Why this strange collision of two stories captured as one? Let me say this. Each time that Jesus performs a miracle, we're not supposed to get fixated on the miracle itself. We're supposed to look right over its shoulder to what it means. We're not supposed to look at the sign. We're supposed to look at to what the sign is pointing us to and every time Jesus performs a miracle in the gospels it is a sign of the kingdom it is a sign of what it's going to be like to be under his kingship all right so we can get kind of fixated on the miracle itself but this is just a signpost as to who he is and what his kingdom's really all about so I want to look at it from that angle this woman let's go to her for a moment this woman has experienced 12 years of menstrual complications that have left her, according to this text, she is broke, she is discouraged, she is isolated, she is embarrassed, and she is desperate. Because she's Jewish, the Jewish purity laws have rendered her unclean. Due to her condition, she can't live a normal life. For 12 years, she has not been able to function or participate in normal social routines. She has always been an outsider. She has always been pushed to the outside of society. All of these religious traditions of her friends and family, she can't participate in in the same way. She can't hug or be hugged. She can't touch or be touched without causing some sort of complication in the religious system of her day. And Luke goes out of his way to say that within a crowded space where hands and bodies were bumping up against one another, a particular hand touched Jesus. And this hand belonged to this woman who was bleeding, a woman who was considered ceremonially unclean, and this hand belonged to a woman who knew she was doing. And this is why she decided to do it in private, because she is not welcomed into normal social routines. She's not part of the party. She's not welcomed into this crowd that is pressing against Jesus. And she knows that. She's an outsider. And so what she's trying to do is she says, they're not going to notice me. There's all this commotion. She kind of sticks her hand in blindly. She reaches out to him. And the moment she touches him, she is healed. And the point of that is when for years, every time she's hugged, every time she's Touched, she's made somebody else unclean. Jesus says, When it comes to me, things work backwards. Things work backwards. This might be what it's like in all the other situations, but the moment your uncleanness, your impurity, your unwelcome, all of those things collide with the person of Jesus, things begin to work backwards. She's healed. And see, what he's saying is that no matter what we bring to the table, when we're in relationship with him, he can make us clean again. I mean, that's what this story's about. That's what he's saying. That's why I'm here. This is what the sign is about. Don't get stuck on what's happening in the story. Look past it. And when you look past, this is what you hear Jesus saying, this is why I'm here. And listen, this is a beautiful part of the story. Jesus brings special attention to this woman, not so that he can publicly embarrass her, but so that he can publicly restore her. Everybody in this small village knew who she was, they knew the doctor she visited, they knew all the routines and tricks that she tried. This is a small town in a small village, they know everything about everyone. And Jesus publicly has a conversation with her because once they knew her as unclean, outsider, not welcome, not wanted, don't touch me, now he can publicly restore her so that they know her as mended, right, restored, and healed. He honors her and saying, you once knew her this way, let everyone hear who she now is. She is fully healed. As we shift to the story of Jairus, you find a man, as I mentioned before, who had hoped that Jesus could heal his daughter before she died, but now she's gone. And so are his hopes. Let's not pretend. This is not some sort of um, make-believe story where he's thinking to himself, oh, at least I've got Jesus in my corner. He does not know. He assumes Jesus is a good Jewish teacher. He believes in a future resurrection. He does not think there's any hope right here in the moment. And so with eyes filled with tears and a heart completely deflated, Jesus continues this conversation with this man and says, Do not fear, Jairus. Only believe, and all will be well. Look at verse 51. Verse 51 says, And when he came to the house... He, being Jesus, allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead, because she really was. What's it all mean, we wonder? What's it all mean? First... Notice that Jesus enters into ridicule, shame, and laughter in the story in order to undo and rewrite the effects of death. See, and only with this girl's parents and with his closest disciples, Peter and the two brothers, James and John, Jesus provides a snapshot of the future that he's writing. When he takes this little girl by the hand, calls her name, tells her to get up, she gets up. And they want to prove that she's really not just a spirit. He says, give her something to eat. That's why the detail of the food is there, because they would have thought maybe she's just a spirit. He goes, no, no, no. Let's prove that she really is flesh and bone. Look at verse 53. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. Here's the point. In order for Jesus to restore and to renew and to remake this little girl, he was going to have to shake hands with death itself. That's the point. That's what's happening in this story. See, if a flow of blood and a touch from this unnamed woman will make you unclean, in Jewish law, the moment you touch a dead body, you are ultimately unclean. And Jesus is saying, I'm willing to reach into all of it. I am willing to shake hands with death to bring her back to life. But for death to be like sleep for this little girl, Jesus would have to taste it too. He'd have to enter into this isolation, pain, tears, question, confusion, all of it, so that one day death itself would be like waking up from a bad dream. That's what's going on in this story. So let's pull them together. When you pull the threads together of these two stories, you can see what they're pointing toward. Jesus provides complete restoration, the end of shame, the putting back together of the fabric of a human being, a human life, and its connection to its community. You also see that he ends suffering. There's the comprehensive and total end of all impurity. And we see that there's the death of death death itself and the promise of new life. But the road to this promised future would have to pass through a handshake with death. And that's why what happens to Jairus and this woman, they're only signs. And the cross was the reality that was coming. This story also shows us that the road to this amazing future that's being painted in this story might not be easy. Your path might be full of delays, potholes, waiting, wondering questions. I want to say that what this story is also assuring us is that those aren't derailments in God's amazing plan. These are not roadblocks in what God wants to accomplish. That's what this story is helping us to wrestle through. These are not just kind of aberrations. Oh God, if you had only been able to intervene, what God is saying is these things that come up as delays and frustrations and disappointments and hurt and pain and suffering are just as much a part of the roadmap, as are any other detail. They are the map itself. And the reason, friends, is because God is not interested in getting to you, you to some random destination as much as you are interested in getting to some random destination. God is only and ever interested in getting your heart. So he's not interested. Do you want to go somewhere? Oh, I'm just going to go ahead and get you there, bless your prayer, get you wherever you want to go. That's not how Christianity works. And so if God brings these things into your life that feel like delays, this was not my dream. I did not want to wait this long. Why are you making me wait? What he's trying to say is this is every bit a part of the story. He wants you to slow down, look up, see him, Be in the moment because that's where God can be found, right there in the moment. That's the only place he's ever found. We are charging forward, almost always forgetting that right now in the moment is where God is and where he wants us to be. There's a writer named Johnny Erickson Tata. Some of you may be familiar with her. She's quoted as saying, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And if that doesn't capture the essence of the cross, then nothing will. Sometimes in his forbearance, wisdom, and goodness to us, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. He hated the death of his son, but he loved the redemption of humanity. Johnny Erickson Tada, what's unique about her story is that at age 18, she, dumped, she jumped into a shallow portion of the Chesapeake Bay. She immediately broke her neck and has been a quadriplegic since she was 18 years old. And she is an individual who understands this statement. Sometimes. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And what Johnny has done through her whole life is to elevate her weakness as a moment to elevate God's goodness. Now, is she waiting for the restoration of her body? You better believe it. But is she meeting God in the moment? Is she slowing down and trusting him with this immense lifelong delay? Yes. Yes. See, and it's stories like Luke chapter 8, which provide us with hope like that, not simply because of the story itself, but because of the way in which those stories are pointing to this glorious, hope-filled reality where Jesus is at the center. Friends, Jairus lost a daughter while he waited, but as you look over his shoulder towards the cross, you find that God understands what it's like to lose an only child too in the delay, in the waiting. And I think it almost has everything to do with God allowing what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And what he loves is you. And frustration and waiting and delays, they're not just roadblocks on God's amazing plan for you. They are the plan. And he's in it. He's not just waiting. He's in it. He's in that moment. But I also want to say that while we wait, Luke 8 is a clear picture that we are caught in these middle chapters, that the story has been written. Write down Revelation 21 and go home and read it because it is all about instant gratification. No more waiting, no more tears, no more delays, no more disease, no more death. And we are caught right in the middle chapters where he goes, I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. I am in the delay too. This is the God that we serve. Let me wrap this up. I had a conversation with a friend of mine this week, and he was dreaming about his future, and this friend realized that every option in front of him had limitations. Every new city that he was thinking about had deficiencies, but this friend has faith in Jesus. You know what that friend said to me at the end of this great conversation? He said, you know what? I realize that no matter where God's going to take me, I know that everything in front of me will disappoint me. Every new city has a deficiency, but it doesn't matter because one day in Jesus, I'll have it all. And I can wait differently. I mean, that's part of what's packed into Luke chapter 8. One day, you'll have it all. He's secured it. He's bringing it home for you. One day, Jesus is going to say to each of us, when he takes us by the hand, he's going to say, child, arise. Welcome to life. Right? Welcome home. One day, we'll have it all. Let me take you to the last part. Waiting, wondering and witness how faith in Jesus informs our waiting. I'm just going to say it like this. A couple things I wanted to say, I'm going to shorten it to one or two. The world has to wait, not just Christians. Everybody deals with frustration. Everybody deals with pain. Everybody deals with suffering. The question is, is there something that we can offer the world in our waiting that they can't find anywhere else? And I think the resounding answer is, is yes, because as Christians, our foundation has very little to do with momentary circumstances and everything to do with the security of being found in Him. Your circumstances are going to change maybe the moment you walk out this door. They come and go like the wind, but what you are anchored upon in Christianity is a God who never changes. And so when suffering comes, when pain comes, everybody's looking for a reason. But what the Christian can offer the world is, I know that my pain, suffering, and delay is not here because God doesn't care. His handshake with death has already showed me that he cares so much that Jesus came for me. So then you don't have to get angry or you don't have to wonder, is this happening because God doesn't love me? No, you rest assured that this actually might be be happening, because God loves me. And I would say that that is what the Bible calls an uncomfortable grace, that He loves you so much, that He'll enter into that waiting, wondering, delay, all of it. And I think that's a unique thing that Christianity can offer the world. One more, because waiting is a reminder that this world isn't our final home We walk through life as aliens, sojourners, and strangers, looking forward to a promise that's to come, which means you look at life differently. And it also might mean that you are able to use the strange things of life, the weak things of life, to make an impact and an influence. A writer, Scott Saul, says, sometimes the best leaders discover in retrospect that it was their crosses and not their crowns that contributed most to the healing of the world. Wow. Sometimes it's in the moments of waiting rather than the moments of gratification and fullness that we can have the most impact and most influence. Maybe just maybe our crosses and not our crowns can contribute most to the healing of the world. What a unique conversation with Jesus. Go back and read through each of the four stories in Luke chapter 8. I've only taken you to the final two. They provide some reality around what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a world that's not quite there yet, not quite perfect. What would it look like for you to enter into conversation with Jesus this week about your questions, about your wondering, about your delays, about your frustrations, and let him meet you there. That's what we want to engender. Come here, get sparked, go back, have a conversation, and let it be the foundation for change in your life. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are gracious to us, good to us, kind to us. We cling to that kindness. I thank you for the way in which Luke 8 speaks to the needs of the human heart, the questions that each of us have, whether we're Christians or we're not. I've got a lot of questions about why you don't show up the moment I want you to. How come my prayers aren't always answered the way I request? But Luke chapter 8, it provides hope. It provides vision. It provides clarity. It reminds us that the signs of the kingdom are pictures of your goodness, of your grace, of your kindness. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see what you would like us to see Help us to understand what you'd like us to understand. And I pray that even as we come to this table, that you'd fill us with spiritual insight that maybe we didn't have when we walked in. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.